I'm Billy. I'm Drew. This is Pilot Club. Pilot Club, Sunday morning Pilot Club. How are you going after a Terrifier and Terrifier 2 last Sunday? <laughs> yeah, so uh, the uh, Pilot Club boys hit up the uh, the cinema to watch the Terrifier and uh, what would you call it, trilogy? Well, it's, it's a loose trilogy. It's interesting, isn't it? Because yeah. we, we, we watched, because um, we often watch a film after Pilot Club, so we hadn't seen either of the Terrifier no. films. So we watched Terrifier Caught up. immediately after. I think Terrifier in some ways was scarier than Terrifier 2. <laughs> yes, if, you, if you're scared of creepy clowns, this one's not for you. I, I was, I mean, I know Terrifier 2 is two and a half hours. I, I, was, I was clock watching during Terrifier 1. You like were. It's, it's, only you eight, were. it's only 80 minutes. <laughs> you were working through. You were has, disavowing Terrifier 1 for, for many days after. It has such an intense aesthetic, <laughs> that first film. I think I was checking the time stamp every five minutes. <laughs> you were. And, you were and, pausing, you were pausing that, that movie very frequently and I'll, counting down, subtracting the, uh, the credits exactly. from the ongoing runtime. Exactly. Trying to calculate the exact length of the credits. I knew how much more agony we had going. <laughs> but that, that was a very intense Sunday. And it we're going to do it again today by watching All Hallows Eve. <laughs> yeah, so that's right. We've got more right. Terrifier. The, the prequel? No, it's not really. Well, it's an anthology film. Anthology, yeah. One of, one of the segments features Art the Clown. Yeah. Is that the vibe? Yeah. Yeah, but, so Art the Clown, an iconic horror villain, probably one of our first really iconic horror villains to be to be minted for a very long time. Yeah, true, and um, and pretty ambitious the second film as well. Yeah, yeah, two and a half hours, uh, magnum opus, if you will. Incredible prosthetics. <laughs> but as you were saying, part aesthetic. three is going to be split into two. Yeah, yeah. So it's going to be even more grandiose, but in, bo- in sweep. Both of them on the same day <laughs> was intense. <laughs> anyway, moving away from horror, talk us, or, or to a different kind of horror. Oh, that's Ooh, right. That's yeah, right. Yeah. Like like uh, like Camus said, l'enfer c'est les autres. <laughs> uh, wasn't wasn't that Sartre? That was no, no exit. No, yeah, I think that's was no it? exit. That's, that's Sartre. Yeah, yeah. One of those guys. Yeah, one of those. Guys. One of those Frenchies. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's Sartre. Um, but yeah, sure, whatever. Um, but yes. staying with that meta. Yes. <laughs> well, they say there's a, they say there's a great expression. You know, there's there's nothing more liberating to be on holiday, except when you meet fellow holiday goers. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, that, you know, on that note, we're returning to watch The White Lotus Season 2. Mm-hmm. Now, again, this is a pilot uh, podcast rather than a series podcast. And obviously this qualifies because the new series of The White Lotus is basically starting almost tabula rasa, mm-hmm. except for one returning character. But in effect, we have a new environment, a new White Lotus Hotel, a new cast of lovable characters, and um, you might even say a new set of thematic preoccupations in I this al- one. I almost wish that, just for the sake of completion, they called it something like The White Lotus Sicily. <laughs> yeah. I wish it had a subtitle just to cement it, because we'll probably do a similar thing next week with The Crown, right? Because yes. the, we haven't done The Crown at all in the podcast, but because the cast rotates every two seasons, mm. next season season five will treat basically as a new show yeah. so it's in that category of a show yeah. that's it has the same name but it's, yeah. it's an anthology what do you call format? it anthology show anthology, anthology show yeah yeah. yeah yeah so and i think that's that's consistent with the idea and i think i think the idea of having a white lotus you know white lotus being a luxury hotel yeah. chain around the world and that's you know that's the the idea of branding that and they, they make kind of you know quite some some nice sort of subtle mocking points about the nature of branding it's and the arbitrariness of branding. An, it's here. an anthology motif. Yes. Like the Cabinet of Curiosities last week. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. So this this qualifies. So um, this was actually not, or the series The White Lotus was not actually originally designed to be an ongoing mm. series or even a an anthology series, but it was so successful, um, winning 10 Emmys um, this year, 
and being a huge ratings hit mm. for HBO, um, that it was you know brought back by creator Mike White, largely at the behest of HBO. So the original White Lotus, um, which was a little mini masterpiece, six-episode masterpiece, which just got stronger and stronger mm. as it went along, charted a cast of characters who were checking into a very luxury, luxurious Hawaiian resort. Did we did we talk about it on the podcast? We did. We did. We did. Yeah. We, did. we we analyzed the the pilot episode, and I think we were complimentary. I remember. I remember that I was kind of half into it, and mm. then I got really into it. Yeah. Yeah. I, the I pilot was the weakest episode, and it yeah. got stronger and stronger. I and didn't then, appreciate just yeah. how entertaining it would be from yeah. the pilot alone. Yeah. And the last three episodes became, mar- mm. and the last episode was an absolute yeah, masterpiece. It's amazing. Yeah. As you saw the arc of the characters. Yeah. Um, and you know the descent narrative on the part of the actual uh, concierge. I, I am the hotel, sorry, the concierge isn't returning. Or the hotel manager. The hotel manager. Or, he was. Call him. He was sort of both. Yeah. 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 He was wonderful. So he I think a, he was a bit like Jennifer Coolidge, uh, the connective tissue between other characters. Yeah. 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 That's right. That's right. So season two of the White Lotus uh, returns us to the White Lotus chain of hotels although it resituates us into a luxury resort in Sicily. So the connective tissue is obviously uh, Jennifer Coolidge, who was the breakout mm. star of the first series, uh, who is back in her role as Tanya McQuoid. Uh, she has such she has <laughs> such great dissoci- uh, like great chaotic energy. Yes. Like there's a great scene where she's sleeping with the guy she meets in the first Yeah, so she's now married. She's now her husband. And right in the middle of it, she says, I'm dissociating. (laughs) And the whole thing just ends. So just her her chaotic energy is amazing here. Yeah. We had a great Jennifer Coolidge month between this and The Watcher. (laughs) Yeah, she's she's wonderful at playing someone who may or may not be medicated, heavily medicated. Is definitely definitely (laughs) spacey, is definitely dissociative and is insulated from all... From all, all consequences, uh, all consequences and, and perils by her enormous wealth. Her, she's a billionaire. It's like her persona, her screen persona, is you never quite know if she's going to be good, chaotic, or bad, chaotic. Yeah. <laughs> Here it's mainly bad, chaotic, but there are moments of good, chaotic as yeah. well. So it's always that. It's funny in terms of the location, too. I remember when I first heard about this, I was a bit surprised they said it in Sicily just because I was expecting a very different kind of backdrop, mm. climate, topography, atmosphere. It's not that far from Hawaii in some ways. No, no. Well, it is it is a luxurious island island resort with beaches. Mm. And, um, you know, obviously the attractiveness of the cast is one of the key mm. points of this and the, and it, it, the various at, mind games that they play with each other too. They're great at choosing people who are attractive in a, an, an unlikable kind of way. Yeah. That kind of Instagram attractiveness where the attraction is is fused with attitude yes that combination of attractiveness and attitude yes and that sense of always parading and being on display Mm. which i guess makes sense at a luxury Mm. resort it's that particularly unlikable brand of attractiveness that the series does so well yeah and people who are surly attractiveness yes yeah that's right and people who obviously are making money out of their commodifying Mm. their their looks in some ways or using it at you know to gain power or influence or money and that's more explicit in this series have you heard of this emerging term looksism (laughs) so it's about discrimination based on looks and i kind of do feel that like one of the most disavowed but pervasive forms of discrimination is looks based Mm. so that that's why you know i'm a big fan of amy schumer and i i feel like 
I Feel Pretty is a minor masterpiece because <laughs> it basically says, what if we saw looks as a class system? Yeah. <laughs> That's the premise of that. And you, you feel that a lot here. Like, it mm. feels like these people have, it's a bit like in Triangle of Sadness, they have financial capital, but they also have looks capital, mm. Inst- mm. Insta capital. Mm. That's right, yes. Especially, so... when, especially when they pretend not to have it. Mm. Mm. That's right. And some of them, their, their particular, you know, that sort of capital mm. is on the wane and mm. they're struggling to, to cope with that. Yep. Um, Jennifer Coolidge. Yes, that's yep. right. That's right. And others, others are, you know, Coming up, uh, boom, on, on the come up as well. Boom, boom and bust. Yeah, it's boom and bust <laughs> so, for looks. So for there's looks definitely yep. there's definitely a generational tension. Yep. Based on the discrepancies in in wealth on the mm. one hand, but also attractiveness on the other, mm. and the various interactions between the generations mm. trying to bridge those different chasms. Mm. Um, so we're introduced to a new cast of characters here. So we have Jennifer Coolidge and John Grease who return as husband and wife. Um, so it's very clear that they're post honeymoon. <laughs> phase and um that you know the the love in their relationship is is definitely whether it was there in the first place is definitely on the on the decline um so it seems like this is a jump start of their relationship if you will and uh for whatever reason uh, jennifer coolidge or tanya mccoy has brought her personal that's assistant good, that's such a good name <laughs> tanya mccoy for yeah, the character that's right that's right she's so she's brought her personal assistant portia on the on the trip who's played by Haley lou richardson um, but as we see from almost the first scene, she wants her personal assistant to be made absolutely scarce on this trip. And there's a series of very hilarious interactions between the two. And you know, uh, her personal assistant's enormous resentment, you know, at her at her handlers, and that, um, that wealth that, and power and control over her is something that is very uh, resonant in this. I feel like that pilot. personal assistant, set, those set pieces, capture something which does feel very different here from the original. I mean, there's not a lot of differentiation in terms of place, right? It feels quite a lot like Hawaii, mm. but there's a much stronger sense of being post-pandemic. So mm. remember, I, I really associate the first series with lockdown or the end of lockdown. Mm. I think it came out during an Australian lockdown or close to one. Yeah. Well, you know, it was created because of the constraints well, of exactly. filming during lockdown. Well, exactly. So, so, so having everything set in the one resort made it easier to quarantine well, exactly. everyone. Well, so exactly. it, was a, it was a bubble. Exactly. And that bubble that was, you know enforced on us mm. by the pandemic was then shot through with these ideas of a bubble of wealth class you know insulating you from the consequence of your actions which might have also been you know symptomatic of the way wealthy people adapted to the pandemic yeah, exactly so yeah exactly so it was shot during lockdown it was released during lockdown and it was there was that sense that the that the resort was this hermetically sealed space it's a very different... F- and you saw almost nobody outside the resort. Mm. And I'm not sure the characters ever actually left the resort. Mm. And the only people they encountered or engaged with out, outside of their bubble were the resort workers. Yeah. There were those scenes... I guess the closest they got were all those rowing scenes mm. and the, the young kids dream of rowing off into the sunset mm. with the um, Indigenous Hawaiians. But there was no kind of outside to the resort. Whereas this time around, it actually starts with all the characters arriving... It starts. It starts with a, pre, a scene in the present, then flashes back. But it starts with the characters arriving in this really crowded Sicilian town. Mm. There's a much greater sense of porosity mm. between the world outside and the resort. So, a big subplot is a couple of local sex workers sneaking in a couple of times. Mm. But I was going to say that that subplot with the assistant feels like a throwback to pandemic spatiality. So yeah. she, everyone's moving freely. Everyone's coming and going. 
but she has to stay locked in her room. Yeah. So she's, yeah. it's almost like she's punished with pandemic conditions, mm. which mm. at first I wasn't sure how I felt about that change because I, I liked, sorry, that change generally because I liked, I liked that hermetic bubble feel in the original, but I think they strike a good balance here. There is that sense of some... Mm. Some interface with the outside world, but yeah. still. But yeah, I think she she's she's like the residue of the first mm. film, mm. confined to her room, spatially, socially distanced. Yeah, she's basically yeah. the socially yeah. distanced character. But that whole whole idea of you know the hermetically sealed, you know, luxury resort mm. versus the, the the environment in which mm. it's situated and the porosity between them is mm. a whole thematic point in this because yeah, yeah. you know the the attempts by the prostitutes to infiltrate the hotel yep. and the various attempts by the hotel guests mm. to keep them out, mm. screen them out, is again, I think, you know, symptomatic about sure. you know, the way that, that wealth and class can insulate you from yeah, from the, these worlds and also the interaction of this luxury tourism with mm. the the, the culture that it's colonised yeah. um, is very interesting as well. I, so. I just thought that gave it a different feel. Like, whereas mm. the original felt like such a product of the pandemic, yeah. this seemed from the beginning to announce itself as post-pandemic or late yeah. pandemic. So although the, the backdrop wasn't that different from the first one, the feeling yeah. was very different, yeah. I thought. Yeah, I think that's right. And in fact, there's, there's a group of the family too who talk about having come to the White Lotus as the launching pad for a trip deeper into Sicily. Yeah. So you sense it's going to like expand. an origins trip. Yeah, it's mm. going to it's going to expand more beyond the resort than mm. the first time around. Just mm. it feels different in that respect. Yeah. Um, so the other char- characters uh, are played. So two college friends, uh, Cameron Babcock, who's played by Theo James, and Ethan Spiller, who's played by Will Sharp. So they're traveling with their wives. As uh, Daphne Babcock, who's played by Megan Fay, and Harper Stiller, who's played by Aubrey Plaza. I think these two couples are the core of the show. Yeah. They're the most entertaining to watch. Yeah. So we discover that Cameron and Will and uh, Will have um, made an absolute fortune as a result of selling their tech company. Um, so they're basically going on a double date getaway celebration, um, but there's enormous tensions between the spouses. And we see that very early on where the, the conflict in values between the two couples comes into comes to the fore. And it's suggested, maybe intimated, that, uh, that Cameron and his wife might be right-leaning Republicans and that Ethan and Will might be more left-leaning uh, Democrats. You basically have, on the one hand, the, the tech bro, mm. the crypto bro, who's right-leaning and his wife who doesn't vote and is apolitical, and they're unlikable in one way. Mm. But then the other couple, the Aubrey Plaza... Um, you know, Aubrey Plaza plays the wife and the other guy, the husband, is more of a nerd character mm. they're they're left in a very insular way as well like they look mm. down on people who don't read books they're very performative in the way they talk about social justice issues so mm. both of them there's a kind of bad faith to both of them like the right you know the, the right-leaning person is not interested at all really in social good and the performative left-leaning person who pretends to be but actually, you know, works in a big corporate environment. Yeah, it, it, and, and bo- makes, both of them are makes kind money of, out of out of allegations as well. So monetizes their yeah exactly. their, their ideology exactly, if you will. So both of them are. I think this is something that the series does so well. Like it, it I mean, there's a big backlash against the original series because it seemed like some critics had this feeling it was just white navel gazing or wealthy navel gazing. And I mean, I'm not convincing myself I'm saving the world by watching it, but it, it does such a good job of painting exquisitely unlikable characters. Yeah. There's such an intrigue to that. Yeah. And these two couples, they're both so unpleasant in subtly different ways. Mm. Just watching the friction between them 
is it's almost mm. like reality television. Yeah. It, it has that immediacy and intensity of reality television. Yeah, yeah. It, it conveyed the sense... Um, Splenetic. This, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a great satire, obviously. Yeah. Um, but it conveyed the sense that this discourse, uh, whatever it is in the public discourse, is excludes the people who are really most affected yeah, exactly, by it. Exactly. And so we you know, we're dealing with the one percent arguing about, you know, mm. you know, different political, you know, hot takes. It's like um, it's like seeing people like discuss the most ethical place to put their four oh one K. Yeah. <laughs> Something like that. That's right. But that's just, right. The characters are so well drawn both sides and yeah. you find yourself not exactly rooting for either, but yeah, it's interesting, the dynamic. I think that, that mm. part of the show mm. is really intriguing. Yeah, I like the best satires. They're incredibly unlikable, but they're also relatable. Mm. You know, I think we can all relate to we a certain extent. We all know people. Yeah, and we, know people. We're all we all da- have some of those all characteristics. All in danger of being, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We, yes, exactly. They're hyperbolic mirror images mm. of aspects of ourselves. Um, so the other main uh, set of characters are the, the, the three generations of men who check in, who are on a guy's trip, an origin trip. Man. <laughs> it, man, will, it man could be a little set up. It is. In self-contained set up here. So we've got... It's, Bert, almost, it's almost a two and a half men set yeah, up, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've got Bert de Grasso, who's played by F. Murray Abraham, who's I, I, the grand... Can I just say, I cannot, I cannot deal with F. Murray Abraham. Like he's, really? He's like John Malkovich. He's one of those actors. I'm just I'm so aware he's acting all the time. Really? Okay. But, I thought he's amazing in this role. Yeah, I don't know. Just with him and... It, it, it is that same type as John Malkovich. I'm just, I'm always, I mean, I don't dislike him, but I'm always so, it's so actorly. I'm so yeah. aware that he's acting. But that's, that his character is so performative that yeah, it works sure. here. No, like I, 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 I get that it works. Yeah. I just, I, I can't do it. Okay. I can't do it. Okay. I'm, I'm not, I'm not on board with F. Murray Abraham. <laughs> really? Okay. Ever, I think. Really? Okay. I think he's great in this role. Uh, Dominic, who's played by Michael Imperioli from The Sopranos and fame. This could almost be Christopher Moltisanti. 20 years later yeah it yeah. feels completely jaded i mean great no spoilers for sopranos but if things hadn't happened the way they had happened towards the end of the sopranos true this could be christopher true. 20 years later it feels like exactly the same character adriana is a distant memory he's returning to sicily to try and this is an alternative sopranos future yeah. i feel this part of the show timeline yep. intersecting um, and there's finally albie uh, who's adam demarco and he's the grandson mm-hmm. and um all of these so they're going to, to Sicily to find the town of their their origin. But in between, they're all encountering the absent women in their lives in various guises. So Bert de Grasso is a major flirt yep. slash sexual harasser. Yep. And there's, you know, various discussions. Not much, not much slash, <laughs> just all. Yeah, so there's, there's, a, there's a lot of conversations yep. about, you know, the different uh, generational mores. Someone uh, else, just to interrupt you, someone else is in that same category, John Turturro. John Turturro, John Malkovich, F. Murray Abraham, fine actors, fine actors, but I'm always so aware that I'm watching an actor. Yeah. They take yeah. me out of it. They take me okay. out of whatever I'm watching. They're very th- theatre actors. They are theatre actors. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what yeah, it they is. They call attention to their actor- yeah. actorliness. They insist upon themselves. <laughs> they do. They insist upon themselves. They do. I do. But I think, yeah, I think Dominic, Dominic and, and, and Albie, those characters, they do play off him quite well. Yeah, yeah. Because they're, you know, they're the straight the straight characters. Well, Michael Imperioli is the opposite, right? He has such immediate screen presence. Mm. He, he just sinks into the role. I mm. think he's really good. Or television presence. He's yeah. Good. Yeah. So, we, yeah, we discover, you know, Bert's obviously, you know, engaged in these kind of, you know, generational, um, you know, flirtation. Mm. Uh, you know, Dominic, we later discover, is, is part of a kind of, um, well, exploitative network mm. that maybe is, is continuous with the luxury hotel environment. He has a big Hollywood 
backdrop yeah, as well. The Hollywood yeah. backdrop. There's some so Hollywood thing going yeah, on. There. So yeah, so obviously all of the Me Too uh, resonances are mm-hmm. present and then Albie is flirting with the, uh, was he, the young I, assistant. I got a bit of a queer vibe from Albie. I wondered if that was a friendship thing with the young assistant. Yeah, just, well, just the way he's positioned in the show. I wonder, again, we don't know. I wonder if there's going to be some kind of queer angle there, with that part of the story. There may well be. There may well be. Um, so, what did you think? Look, you... I thought I thought it was great. I yeah. I saw that the reviews were a bit more middling than mm. the, not. Well, compar- They're still pretty comparatively. Pretty comparatively. Like yeah. The first. Where is the first? We'll be hitting, say, 95 on Metacritic or Rotten Tomatoes. This is mm. hitting 82, mm. middling in that sense. And I also did wonder, could they repeat the magic? And I thought the trailer actually wasn't that amazing for it when I first mm. watched a trailer. But i got to say, I thought this was fantastic. I yeah. loved how much stuff was left open mm. and emergent. Mm. I thought it was really intriguing. And I thought it's just great character-based drama. Mm. Like, all the characters are so interesting and intriguing in their unlikability mm. and in their pathologies. I mm. just... It's appointment viewing for me. I wanted more as yeah. soon as I saw it. <laughs> Absolutely. The, I, I completely agree the epitome, with you. The epitome of character-based television. It's a, it's a drop-everything-watch yep. <laughs> series, this one, mm. as well. I was a bit concerned that the same, at, at the beginning of the framing device of this is exactly like the White Lotus one. Mm. There's a dead body, or in this case, multiple. Bo- bodies. <laughs> um, so this is just a murder mystery here, but it's not. It's pretty hard, half-hearted. And it's, and I, I you know, like it's a narrative hook that's not really pursued in any no. great you know, with any great vigour. And I got the impression, even from that opening comment about bodies, that maybe we're looking at an accident or something mm. here rather than a crime, per mm. se. Mm. The bit I wasn't as into, actually, interestingly, was the sex workers. I, I thought they felt like a bit of a deus ex machina. I didn't mm. think that they had a lot of presence in the show and they felt a bit arbitrary. I like I liked that idea of the boundary being a bit more porous. but mm. And maybe they come into it in an interesting way later on. But actually, I thought the internal dynamics of the guests... Mm was actually interesting enough without them. Yeah. Maybe my only... Well, it's not exactly a reservation, but something I'm interested to see is how well it maintains that sense of insularity because it's obviously yeah. going to expand out beyond the hotel to some extent. Mm. Or maybe the plot points will be how that's thwarted or yeah. foiled. So yeah. I, I mean, I'm interested, but I certainly a hard in. Like, yeah. it's very... It's intriguing. Yeah. It's in really ways, intriguing. In some ways, you hope it's not too plot-driven yep. because the whole premise of the first one was just put a whole bunch of characters... Mm with different conflicting values mm. into a pot and just watch them combust. And again, <laughs> that's why it reminded me of reality television. It has that exquisite... Yeah. yeah, it's like Big Brother. Yeah, it is, exactly. <laughs> or like Real Housewives of White Lotus. Mm. Like that wealthy people, putting mm. a whole lot of wealthy people together and just watching all their pathologies. Yes. <laughs> Ultra-wealthy <laughs> Americans' pathologies rise to the surface. So, mm. look, I'm a hardy and I thought this was great. I really hope it continues to be a franchise. I think it's really fun really interesting and really well written and directed and yeah. crafted. Yeah. Well, this is, I think, consistent with the first one. A really amazing Manipian satire. Yep. It's, you know, tackles everything from sexual politics to the, you know, privilege of wealth, mm. um, you know, whiteness, mm. um, you know, the the interaction between America mm. and Europe. Um, I'm, I'm already a little bit curious about what the next White Lotus location will be as well. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if I wonder if it'll always be a seaside thing, yes, always be a coastal yes. thing. I feel like Thailand would be a good place to do it. I don't know. Yeah, that would be more, even more porous. Yes, you feel. Yeah. I also wondered if they'd ever go alpine. You feel like the insularity of a, a really fancy ski lodge or yeah. alpine retreat might work as well. Possibly, but possibly. I'm, I'm curious about the geography of it. Yeah, yeah. As much as anything yeah. else, I think. I think what's what's interesting about this, you know, the public square at the moment is so fractious. Yep. That that just putting characters in there who represent different yeah. viewpoints and ideologies inherently creates enormous dramatic tension. Yeah, and that's that's a nice way to put it because 
it's it's remarkable that for a show that is so attuned to the present, there's not much social media in it. Mm. But it it already so feels so aligned with the feeling and persona of social media. Mm. These it's a bit like bodies, bodies, bodies. That mm. film, right? These almost feel like Instagram or Twitter types yeah. already, whether they're right leaning or left leaning. So it does have that. It's like watching social media personalities that we all know, like genres of yeah. personality on social media come to life. Yeah. And there's something really cathartic and fascinating about that. Yeah, there is. There so, is. There is. Yeah. And I, I think this is so well cast. Yeah. You know, Aubrey Plaza she's is perfect. amazing. Hayley Lou Richardson. Yep, she's perfect. Uh, Michael Imperioli. Yeah, yeah. It's just a rogues gallery of amazing character actors. <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> I agree. And of course, anchoring it all, Jennifer Coolidge. Yes, of course. I hope she's... It seems like she's going to become the Jessica Lang. You know, how in yeah. American Horror Story, Jessica Lang is the yeah. recurring. She's the just she's a spirit animal. Yeah. Interesting question. Did they even need Jennifer Coolidge character? I think she's just there for, <laughs> for, for tone. Yeah, I feel like I feel like yeah. her, I feel like her stories are not going to intersect that much with the others. Yeah, or they'll intersect in a really pivotal way once or twice. Yeah, but she's just there for mood and ambience. Yeah, and. She is so good at that. Yeah, she is. She's, she is. She can't be bad. Yeah. So, yeah. look, I'm a hard in. I thought it was yeah. great. Mike White's done it again. Yeah, yeah. Hard in. Okay, on to our second show this week. Mm. Now, this is... Sitcom territory, Billy. Sitcom this is, territory. This is your bread and, and butter. This, this may be... I mean, on paper, this may be the most me show ever. And I, <laughs> I wondered whether this would quickly enter my top five safe spaces or my, <laughs> yeah. even my all-time... Become my all-time safe space. Yeah. It's So, it's a series blockbuster. Um, on Netflix, and it's it's a sitcom about it's a it's basically about the last days of the last blockbuster store mm. in Michigan, in the United States. Mm. Oh, so it's based on a true story. It's based on it? a true story. Oh, it's okay. based on a documentary called The Last Blockbuster. Oh. It's basically about a group of blockbuster employees who discover that every other block, but like the second last blockbuster has been sold, right? And that they're now the final blockbuster in the United States. Okay. So they rally together to try and renew video store culture. And they're, head, okay. they're headed by the uh, manager, Timmy, played by Randall Park. So everything I love about the sitcom, I love about the video store, right? They're both yeah. about provisional spaces of domesticity, about hangout spaces. So uh, this uh, it, it's a half-hour sitcom. It's from the people who created Superstore. I feel like almost there are two shows happening here. Mm. There's an incredible memory palace of the video store, an mm. incredible homage to the video store. But beneath it, actually, a bit of a disappointing sitcom mm. and a bit of an anodyne sitcom in some mm. ways. So mm. let, let's talk about the first bit. I mean, I I felt emotional from the very moment the image of the video store appeared in this in this series, right? Yeah. It's, a lot of it is about just recreating the video mm. store. Um, there's not a lot of plot in the first episode, no. actually. Interesting question. Mm. Is this a period piece or is it set in the absolute present? No, no. So it was set, set a couple of years ago. Okay. Yeah, so the store closed a couple of years ago. Okay. So I think it might even be pre-pandemic that it closed. Okay. Because um, they make a lot of very contemporary references. That's true, isn't it? So maybe, maybe they've tried to update it to the mm. present. It's almost reason. like it, they make references as if it is the present. No. But I was like, surely there aren't still blockbusters in existence. My now. understanding is the store has since been turned into a, an Airbnb where you can stay and sleep amidst all the video store infrastructure. Oh, my God. So if I you ha- ever go to America, you've got to stay in that place. I have place. to do that. It's, it's on my... It's on my bucket list. <laughs> Something that's weird that I, I learned recently too is that apparently blockbusters peak years were around 2007, 2008. So you, yeah. you think of the video store as peaking in the 90s or being such a 90s phenomenon, but it was actually during that peak DVD era. Mm. So what what I kind of almost think of as late or starting to become late blockbuster era mm. or late video store era, the late 2000s was actually its peak. Mm. But anyway, um, in terms of the series... 
so yeah, you have this incredible recreation of the video store as a space, and that that was I felt emotional just looking at that. Like mm. I had you know like all just little details like the the different categories, the genres, just stuff about body language. So seeing people shelving while they're talking, seeing people scanning along shelves, physical browsing, mm. like the postures, the haptics and postures of physical browsing in a video store feel as alien now as I guess swiping through a phone for films would mm. have felt alien back mm. then. Well, I mean, we do it at bookstores still, right? Yeah, but I think that <laughs> I agree, but not many people go to bookstores even these days, right? Like people get books from book depository mm. from online and compared to, I mean, the number of people who would have browsed in CD stores and DVD stores compared to bookstores. Yeah, the, browse, the browsing space and the action yeah. of browsing is, but, but, has been all digitised. Yeah, but it, even bookstores in, in my lifetime have never been the centre of the media universe. No. Whereas DVD stores and record stores were. So that yeah. sense of browsing in a space that's at the absolute epicentre of the media world. Yeah. Having having worked in a bookstore, it's, it's not the same, that kind of browsing space. Mm. And I think especially now, my sense is that bookstores have become more and more restricted in what they have since mm. so much is available online. So just seeing all that browsing and all that, and just, you know, conversations while shelving, this, that whole life world of the video store mm. was incredible to see recreated so lovingly. Mm especially because you don't tend to see it recreated that often in film, right? Like no. it's a space that you don't see just because it's not a part of our world anymore. Mm. You don't see it outside of period pieces, no. period films. No. And even then I sense... I it played a big role in that movie, The Holiday. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I don't yeah. know when that movie was made, but it seems like Blockbuster was still a thing. I then, think it's like it? 2005, okay. 2006. Yeah. So yeah, it plays a big role. And almost there in that film, it's connected to... There's a real continuity between the video store and classical Hollywood. Yeah, Remember that's the Kate right. Winslet character... Um, but yeah, I mean, so that, that, that was incredible to see, like it, it just gave mm. me such a visceral embodied sense of mm. being in a video store again. Mm. And I, I guess I wonder why directors shy away from depicting video stores. I mean, maybe it's, it can feel like easy nostalgia or mm. cheap nostalgia, but also maybe it's a little bit traumatic, a bit confronting mm. to kind of, to acknowledge that whole material element of film culture has passed away. But for whatever reason, it just, it was like... It was like I was back in a video. Like it, it made mm. me realize that since I stopped going to video stores, mm. I haven't seen many DVDs or videos mm. or depictions mm. of DVDs and videos well, on shelves. What are the great depictions? The great cinematic slash televisual depictions of the video store. So I was I was thinking like Be Kind Rewind. Is, okay. I mean Michelle Gondry is probably one. I guess in terms of affect, if mm. not location something like clerks would fall into that category right. I mean, I know clerks, that's not in a video store it's itself, not in a video store it's in a department store that has videos okay but the vibe of it i think is very close to yeah. a video store yeah um the lost boys maybe remember there's a whole the whole subplot in the lost boys mm. that revolve this is such an 80s subplot the family moved to a new town and the mother, I think it's Diane Weist, mm. gets a job at a video store. Oh, right. That's, that's okay. what the yeah. mum does. <laughs> there was something else I loved about this episode too. Like it kind of really captured the incredible, almost utopian cross-section of people who would work at video stores. Like I remember going to local video stores and there'd be people there of all ages, yeah. from teenagers getting their first job to people in their 50s and 60s. Mm. And these people from completely different walks of life and generations would bond over a shared knowledge of film. Yeah. And even if the younger people went on to other careers, they would have this lifelong knowledge. Like I've met people in my 30s who work in completely different careers, but because they worked in a video store early in their life, yes. they have this comprehensive knowledge of film from a particular period. Yeah. So you have this kind of public sphere where there's this yeah, dramatic cross-section of people 
I mean, I really love the old woman in this yeah, season. She's when, I say, when I say old, she's in her 60s. These people who I remember from my childhood would be you know, in their 60s or 70s but could recommend every Wes Craven film to me. Yeah. I just took that loving, had that lo- loving knowledge of their profession. Mm. So I think this, this really captured, it captures that beautifully in the rapport between the characters. It captures the layout and space of the video store so well. Like it almost anatomizes it. So there's stuff about the candy bar, there's stuff about the gaming section, there's stuff which situates the store in the strip mall environment. Like it's You're giving this show so much credibility. It's so giving, I mean yeah, it just shot a video store. Well, what, that was all it did. But I feel like just trained a camera on a blockbuster. <laughs> that was the extent of it. There's, there's really not much artistry or, or intentionality in any like, of this. But I feel like they recreate it so well. I'm thinking another another great video store film obviously screams there's a whole there's a lot yeah. remember randy works yeah. in a video store but these uh, are scenes of course it's not a you know there's there seems to be like great a lot of great record store yeah. films like you know high fidelity empire records yeah but is there equivalent is there a televisual or cinematic equivalent of a video of a I, of a video store that's really a film that yeah. is entirely about a video store yeah. i mean there are films about haunted videos and haunted media but about yeah. the store as a space the, the store itself as a space maybe not and i think maybe the major misstep of this series is not actually making it a period piece maybe it needs to be set what you think it in, should in the past it yeah. should have been set in the past well, because some... it's a workplace comedy mm. uh it's about random people interacting mm. Why do we need this high concept premise that is the last blockbuster? Well, this—that's the most arbitrary thing about this, and I, I the agree. most gimmicky thing, and the the thing that takes it takes it away from that reality effect that you want to have in a sitcom. Well, absolutely. So, two things I agree with that. Two things I feel about that. Firstly, watching it, I was like, how has there never been a sitcom in a video store? Mm. Like, how did this never happen? Mm. I mean, there's, sitcoms come in, video stores come into all kinds of sitcoms. Mm. I mean, it's a pervasive trope in Seinfeld, in Will and Grace, in Friends, like video stores percolate every Gilmore Girls video stores percolate every major 90s and noughties comedy but yeah so why has there never been a comedy set in a video store that's the first thing the second thing is yeah like the fact that it's set in the last blockbuster gave me an uneasy feeling because of course the paradox here right is that Netflix is has you know ordered the show has created the show but Netflix is also the reason why the block the video store failed yeah so there's an element of dancing on the grave. Yeah, there's, this, there's this irony and there's this paradox in the fact that Netflix has commissioned the series. And my fear is that the series will almost become about the inevitable decline of the blockbuster or about the inevitability of Netflix taking over or almost become a Netflix myth of origins. Not necessarily narratively, but tonally. So mm. something that's strange about the series, I think, is that there is the series is basically charting out a transitional space between video store and Netflix, right? Mm. That's what it's doing period-wise. And mm. the, the very first conversation references Netflix. Mm. Very, mm. So, it's a very meta thing for Netflix to do. <laughs> very meta. So narratively, it's charting this bumpy path from video store to Netflix, right? But mm. stylistically, it is so airbrushed and so anodyne and so streamlined that the message, the subtext seems to be, well... Netflix just absorbed everything that was good about the video store anyway. And yeah. this, this always had to happen. So my fear is that that through sheer airbrushed anodyne seamlessness, it will peddle this narrative that Netflix has simply <laughs> ab- absorbed all the warmth, <laughs> absorbed all the warmth of the video store. And I think a good counterpoint is Superstore. Like you've seen a bit of Superstore, right? I've never seen it. Okay, so it's, I feel like we've watched it once together. No. So it's the same series creators. Um, or at least some of them, I think. And Superstore is really sharp. It's got a really sharp sense of humour and it's mm. it's different 
in that respect. I mean, I think it's it's the show that's most like in the spirit of The Office since The Office. Mm. I know people often say that about Parks, but Parks has a has quite a sentimental undercurrent, whereas Superstore has that sense of precariousness and melancholy that sharpens the comedy a little mm. bit as well. Mm. This, I think, is not sharp at all, which is strange because both Superstore and Blockbuster are about precarious labour, right? Working in a big box store. A big, a big subplot in Superstore is unionisation. Mm. And here, again, you know, working at the end of a declining industry. So there's this weird thing where it is all so sanitised mm. that it feels like there's no real conflict and that the arrival of Netflix is a fait accompli. So that's what, when you say setting it in the past, I agree with that up to a point because I feel that setting it in the present, almost just by virtue of the style of the show is turning it into a bit of a an origin story yeah. for I Netflix. Think, I think as well, you don't want to feel that a sitcom is is time-bound. You don't want to feel temporality in a mm. sitcom. I agree. A sitcom you want to sink in, it's, it's something that occurs outside of time. Mm. It's got a very clear sense of place, but not a clear sense of time. Mm. The characters don't change from season to season, mm. except for maybe minor differences. It's almost like at the beginning of every episode, things are reset. Mm. So you've got this this enormously comforting thing because mm. it they sort of defy death. Like watching sitcoms is like That's... it's like dealing with you know the fear of death. Well, it's it's de- it's defeating the fear of death because at... sitcoms defe- defeat death at... in some in some weird weird ironic way. And, and you don't as, get a sense as, we, of... as we mentioned on the podcast, you know, I first got attached to sitcoms through Faulty Towers and I, I got attached to Faulty Towers by just watching it over and over again after yeah. kind of traumatic surgery basically in year yeah. nine. I completely agree with that. And I think on top of that, you know, there's a very, very concrete window to this series, right? It's not just mm. that it's set in an era where time is is more pressing we all know that Blockbuster failed. Yeah. So it feels like it can really only go for a season or two. Yeah. And before... if it continues on, it's yeah. it's become unrealistic and rather redundant. You're right. It doesn't have that. What's that thing called? It's called partial continuity or something. Yeah. That sense in which, just say in a show like Seinfeld, you will have historical events that proceed in real time, but the characters don't change. Yeah. I mean, that seems like it's harder to do here just because there is such a window yeah. on what can happen. Yeah. So, yeah. I just, I think, I think yeah. also the yeah, video store is just an interesting enough space as as a workplace mm. that the interactions people have um, would be so great and so naturalistic and just like the White Lotus, you know, just put, you know, create a great space, mm. put characters in there, mm. and let let the conflict latent in the character dynamics drive the show. And here, the show is driven by all these arbitrary external events and in fact the first episode is basically an existential episode because it's justifying you know the continuation of the series and the stakes are too high and too low simultaneously absolutely and you know in terms of stuff being outside and external i mean that's almost literally the case here too right so you have as you said the best thing to do is just set up the space get some good character interactions and there is so much that you can enjoy in terms mm. of talking about movies and mm. you know this made me realize how much i miss movie recommendations as just a part of the video store experience. Yeah. But weirdly, almost like like half the episode, two-thirds of the episode takes place outside. Yeah. So they, they resort to, in, a, in an effort to drum up support for the blockbuster, they host a big gala event in the car park. And again, that this ambient gala event almost felt like a prototype for streaming for me. Like yeah, it, yeah. The, when they move outside and suddenly you have all these different 
attractions and channels and the the address of the entertainment is much more diffuse and ambient mm. it felt like what we were seeing there was a streaming future yeah but yeah no sooner have we got a glimpse of this workplace and all of a sudden we're outside it i mean i wonder if there, th- that tension in the show is interesting like they really want to resume that cozy space of the video store and resume it and make it felt in the present but they also realize that they maybe can't fully do that if it's a period piece. Or maybe even Netflix doing a period piece about the video store would make you realise how much we've lost. Yeah. So it f- I think as well, I mean, a lot of the the, the comedy here is, is I think, my least favourite comedy, which is lazy allusions to contemporary pop culture. Yeah, true. And, you know, uh, slang. And I mean, it's just, you know, it's just it's so easy just to, you know, make an allusion in the place of a joke. Mm. And so much of this series is just... Is just that. And, and the pity about that is, exactly, it's not character-driven comedy. No. And video stores were repositories of such great characters. Mm. I, I remember some of the video store clerks I've met and talked to over time, and they shaped my taste. I remember their personalities. Yeah. Quentin Tarantino yeah. was a video store clerk. Yeah, so yeah. that sense of the video store as a, yeah, as a repository of personality mm. is not here at all. No. And I think we could make a better sitcom just with drawing you know casting people that we know who have worked in video stores and just putting them in a, in a place I'm, and I'm, just shooting that i'm thinking people right now <laughs> yeah. exactly i mean it almost writes itself right yeah and it's there, there are very few public spaces now i think where people casually talk about things like film or music in that mm. in that public sphere kind mm. of way i mean there's a lot mm. of there's a lot of stuff on social media and there's different kinds of discussion forums but that place where you have people with dramatically different tastes coming up against each other mm. doesn't really exist in the same way and it's as you said, it's ripe for a sitcom. Yeah, I think I think probably the reason is that it's gone. This is a very big swing. It's very, it's it's going aimed for a very broad type mm. type of comedy, uh, a mass market here. Mm. So to do that, they really sanded off the edges of all the people who we know worked in video stores who are much more idiosyncratic than any of the characters here. I agree, but also because I think there's something inherently dissonant about Netflix creating this show. So yeah. there's, it's almost like Netflix is using the show to calibrate how close it is to the video store. It's, mm. it's like Netflix is claiming the video store as its own retrospectively. Mm. And if it tries to be too nostalgic, the video store will emerge as something other yeah. and something maybe superior in some ways to Netflix. Yeah. But the, the price it pays for that is that the, net, the, the video store becomes subsumed into the, in some ways, the blandest part of the Netflix brand. Yeah. So uh, it, it did, it's funny, that dissonance, it did, one thing it did do very well was capture the dissonance of late era DVD stores. So I remember mm. going to DVD stores around 2013, 2014. I mean, let me jump back from that a bit. I remember around 2016, right when we moved into Stanmore, I suddenly realised how, all of a sudden, how much streaming had overtaken DVDs. Mm. It, it, these big media shifts, you almost notice when they're two-thirds of the way through. Mm. I realised, and all of a sudden, now in the present... To think back to a time before the Apple TV interface or before smart TV interfaces, let alone to a time before, you know, you put stuff on USB. This is only really 10 years ago, but it feels unimaginably remote. Mm. So now in retrospect, you can see that the pieces coming together for mm. that shift. Mm. But yeah, I mean, you're a diehard video, oh, absolutely. video store guy. You're still going to them, what, several years ago? Several years ago. but, but <laughs> You're making a special trip. So Exactly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I, got, I, I racked up several hundred dollars in fines and stuff. <laughs> but, you know, that trajectory now in retrospect is quite clear. But I remember around 2013, 2014, just having 
I guess, an inchoate sense or a sense that I wasn't even fully aware of, mm. a, a, an unconscious sense that the video store was dissociating and things were happening elsewhere. So, mm. for example, renting out... I mean, the classic example is waiting to rent out Game of Thrones Season 5 so I didn't have to torrent it illegally, mm. but having the whole thing spoiled for me inadvertently <laughs> by, by a newspaper headline. I mean, I, try, you know, I tried to do the right thing. I went down the legitimate channels, but the fact that this newspaper headline in Australia spoiled it yeah. made it clear that things were happening elsewhere. Just that strange, diffuse space of the video store that was a kind of a dissociating public sphere. Mm. I feel like this series does capture that well. So the, yeah. the cognitive dissonance... Late video store. Yeah, the cognitive dissonance <laughs> of this series. And I, I don't think... It's it not in, a very comforting environment to recreate, it's a, though. It's a strange... Well, I, I think so much of Civic Video 5 Doc, for example, which used to be this glorious, neon-clad, expansive, browse-for-hours video store, but was gradually kind of... You know, what, what's the word looking for? It was gradually... Um, like the, the, overtaken. the yeah overtaking the business cannibalized the businesses on either side came in closer and closer so i went you know one month i think the funeral parlor next door <laughs> bought half of it the next month well, that was, that's that's richly symbolic isn't yeah, it yeah a dry cleaning business took part of it yeah so just seeing the store shrink and shrink i think this captured that i'm not sure this i'm is, pretty sure that 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 um video store actually doubled as a as a drop in drop out it did try cleaner it did yeah it did <laughs> so but it diversified in the most bizarre way absolutely possible. um and so i don't think this i don't think the blockbuster is setting out to create this explicitly as a period effect but i think its own dissonance and netflix's own ambivalence about what the project means almost inadvertently captures that weird dissonance so yeah. it it absolutely captures that time 23 I, I associate it with concord Mm. Concord blockbuster above all else going mm. up to and especially a time when you were often browsing television series yeah it's that strange space between yes. uh, which which is also which is exactly the space that Netflix colonized yes that strange space between television video store and mm. and physical media I remember I found and those late late stage video stores the uh, television DVD rentals so extortionately expensive that it was mm. just more economical to buy them absolutely yeah so <laughs> so the video store became like JB Hi-Fi. Yep. The, the browse section in the yeah, JB yeah. Hi-Fi became actually more rich well, it's like the and vi- abundant it's than like, the actual video store. Yeah, well, it's like the DVD store rental system never caught up with television. So mm. you'd pay $5 a night for one disc of a series. Mm. And then, but there'd be like 10 discs. Yeah, yeah. You know, there'd be five <laughs> discs. So you end up paying twenty five fifty. <laughs> I have such a visceral memory of that Concord. I'm, I'm really rambling now. But there was a guy there. This is back when I was a bit of a hypochondriac. There was a guy there who always had a hacking cough. So I just always had this hacking, hacking cough. And I just remember always just... There were people in video stores who hadn't seen sunlight in decades. I yeah. I remember always just dodging around him to get in. And something about that, that encapsulates this sense of a weirdly impoverished public sphere. Like I'd kind of slink past this coughing guy. And yet, but what you say too, in terms of JB Hi-Fi, it was that time when... New, there was that whole front section of the video store where you could buy new DVDs yeah. and then the regular rental section. So I think, yeah, Blockbuster and so, something, something else. That... I think the most interesting thing about this, everything interesting we talked about has not been about this series at all. One thing... You're... We've been talking around the series. Yes. And if you watch it, you'll understand so why. The series is like an incitement to discourse. The final thing I said that was interesting is, and again, this is not inherent to the series necessarily, um, maybe, but... You know, there are certain films that you just always think of as attached to a medium. So yeah. I'll always think of Heat, Michael Mann, as a, as a um, VHS. 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 I'll always think of The Sopranos as a DVD. Mm. But conversely, there are many films that have come out since that material era that it's so weird to think of as physical objects. So I felt like in this show, they deliberately placed recent films on the shelves in a kind of uncanny way. So films like Midsummer, 
that I would never think of as being a DVD or a VHS that I, I saw in cinemas, I've seen on streaming that belong entirely to the streaming era. So mm. I don't know if that was intentional, but just seeing a lot of films that, for me, are embedded in, st- in streaming life. Mm. But to see them as physical objects, physicalised, was really strange. Yeah. And, but I don't know if that was intentional, just stuff they happened to have on the shelves. It, it, it just captured too, didn't it? That that period, 2015, 2016, where everywhere there were piles of DVDs. Yeah. Council pickups, bargain basements, <laughs> front of DVD stores. Like there was this huge outpouring of just huge, like DVD detritus. They were being turfed out. Everywhere, <laughs> yeah. Like there must be landfill, yeah. like huge landfill of DVDs everywhere. It, it captured, so it captured that period. But yeah, it, it left me, at first I found it very emotional and then it left me feeling curiously hollow. Mm in the same way as late-era DVD stores. Mm, mm. I'm not sure I think it's a good faith series. No. And I also feel that by cornering the market in a bit of a bland way, Netflix has maybe disincentivized other streaming services from doing a video store sitcom. Yeah. It's almost like it's a gesture of disincentivization. <laughs> That's true. Gesture of bad faith. Yeah, gesture of bad... Well, exactly. So, yeah, gesture of bad faith, but also of deterrence. Yeah. <laughs> of deterrence of other people writing anything, you know, writing or filming anything about DVD stores. So I feel like it's... There's something off about it that I don't particularly like, but yeah. I love I love the sets. <laughs> the sets struck 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 a chord. So you're hard out on the series, but I, uh, I'm not a hard out in the series. I'm, oh, what? I, I'm a provisional in on the series. <laughs> what? And a, a, what? And a hard in on the sets. It could get better. It could get better. I can see it getting wow, better. Yeah. You're not prepared to quit it yet. No. Oh no. You I'm just go- don't know how to quit blockbuster. I mean, look. I mean, I think there's a lot of issues. I'm going to watch the whole thing. I'm going to watch the whole thing. Uh, you and sitcoms. But, well, sitcom video store. Hopefully it gets better. I mean, it, something else that's weird too. So we will stop. It's not just Blockbuster. I mean, Randall Park is such a good actor. He's good. He's yeah. such a good... And, but he's not given much to work with here. No. Like, compare him to in Veep. Or, like, he's, he's so good elsewhere. Mm. He almost has to ham it up because he's given so little to work well, with. Well, you get a sense it's like one of those really lame scripts where the main the lead has to bring so much energy yep. yeah. <laughs> and emphasis to it everything they It just becomes car- caricature yeah. and hyperbole. Yeah. But I mean, things like that, like the fact that he's in it, I think is promising. All of a sudden, <laughs> I've, done, I've done a 180. Yeah. And, I've done, and all of a sudden, I'm like, I, I have hope. This is like me in the video yep. store. This is me. This is me in the video store, like 2014. It's like, oh, I have joy. Oh, it's bleak. I have hope. Joy, joy, despair, hope. Let's be honest. I mean, the the bar for you to watch a sitcom that's true in full, yep. is about one centimeter high. Yep, exactly. There's, 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 there's no sitcom I won't I won't watch except for sitcoms that think they're better than sitcoms, like like Friends. In which case, it's like you're not better than me. You're not the cool group. You're in a sitcom. Um, I'm a hard in. I'm in, in spirit. I'm a hard in. I'm a, who am I talking about? I, can, I feel like I've just spent. I've just. I've, I've just. We spent like half an hour talking about all the nuances of this show. There are video store sets. I'm a hard in. I was always going to be a hard in. And you're definitely going to that video store slash Airbnb. Oh yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Are you a hard in? Oh, I'm a hard out. Okay. I'm. That was I'll be, awful. I'll be watching more tonight. It's awful. Okay, on to our next show for this week. So we spoke about Blockbuster for forty minutes. Um, this is the show. This is the show. Incitement of discourse. I know. I, <laughs> At least I, you bring, didn't bring in Tegan and Sarah. That's yeah, yeah. one thing we can all be grateful well, for. Yeah. Um, I, I've become I've become that person who talks to people loudly at parties about Blockbuster. They just they just back away after four hours. It's like that meme of the guy yelling in the girls. Back in the day, Blockbuster had a better selection than the average streamer. I've just become that guy. 
Um, that and Terrifier. That and Terrifier. <laughs> I have recommended Terrifier 2 to a lot of people this week. I think maybe just to deflect the intensity of seeing yeah. it. I, I reached a point where I was like, oh, maybe this is not everybody's, this is not everybody's cup of tea. Yeah. Terrifier yeah. 2 is starter pack, but if you're into the hard stuff, Terrifier Terrifi- 1. And All Hallows Eve, which we're going to do today. Um, but yeah, look, this is an interesting show. This is another show that I think yeah. is almost like two different series. Yeah. So I'll talk through well, which one. This, this is the most you know, jerry-rigged series I've ever seen. Yeah, and <laughs> literally feels it was just like two series just shot in different places. Two series had a baby that do not intersect yeah. at all. It's it's it is like well, so let's, let's so series one. It's called Inside Man. Um, series one is David Tennant plays. A, it's set in England. Yeah, David Tennant plays a. a, a, a We'll come back to how it opens in a moment. But essentially, yeah. David Tennant is a priest. Yeah. He works with another guy. The guy gives him um, a USB with some illicit material on it and says, my mum's come to stay. Can you look after it? David Tennant gets home. His son's tutor, played by Dolly Wells, comes. She finds a USB. She sees what's on it. She says she'll call the police. She thinks it's David Tennant's. He locks her in a basement. That's subplot one, right? Yeah. I think that series is okay. It's got legs. <laughs> that but, series is... But series two, <laughs> series two is amazing. So in series two... Series um, two is better. Series two, Stanley Tucci is grief. <laughs> um, this series... I mean, I feel like series one, I can't see going for more than a couple of episodes. Series two could go for seasons. <laughs> series two is amazing. So Stanley Tucci plays yeah. a professor of criminology. Yeah. He's on death row, but he's a consultant. <laughs> he's a consultant. And because he has this background in criminology, people come to consult with him about cases. And yeah. he's very picky. And yeah. he insists he's always accompanied with his sidekick, Dylan, played by Atkins Estimand, yeah. who has an eidetic memory. Yeah. So people rock up. Yeah. Give cases, Stanley Tucci ums and ahs, yeah. and his sidekick records it all. <laughs> now, there are so many, like, enjoyably inane, yeah. idiotic touches here. There's lots of Tucci moments. So, one of the big things at the beginning... <laughs> Chef's kiss Tucci moments yeah. here. So, here's my pitch for the Tucci show, right? Memorable Tucci moments. During the first scene, um, Tucci gives his sidekick a riddle, and it takes... Yeah. The sidekick, the whole it's episode. Big Tucci energy here. Exactly. The, the sidekick gets... Um, Dylan takes a whole episode to solve it. Yeah. Tucci says it's obvious. It's not. they got to have that in every episode. Yeah. Every episode, Tucci gives the sidekick a riddle. I also Did reckon... Did you get the resolution of the riddle? The riddle made no sense. The, <laughs> I didn't get The riddle it. made absolutely no they, sense. When they came up with the resolution, I didn't understand it. It made... But it was more enjoyable for that. Also, I reckon in, in the final episode of the Tucci show, he's exonerated. <laughs> he's let out of death row at the very end. Because people ask him... So. Something that's an important part of the well, show. That's the last series. He's got to do it and he'll he'll receive a pardon from yep, the governor. Yep, yeah, but it also turns out that he didn't kill his wife. Because yeah. the reason Tucci's in yeah. there is, and this is another yeah. great, but he apparently killed his wife, but no one believes he did it, including the warden, but he insists that he did. Yes. So it seems like he's protecting someone. So this is a show I want. Every week, <laughs> someone comes and asks Tucci for advice. Tucci ums and ahs. Tucci gets his mate to record it identically. He gives his mate a riddle. And all along, we wonder, what's actually happening with Tucci's case? And it's all on death row. And, you know, yeah. it's, it's So actually, it doesn't leave death row. It doesn't leave death row. Okay. Yeah, exactly. so, or, so what happens to the 20 minutes or, or maybe, so, 30 or, minutes? Or maybe, you know, we see stuff. We, have, just, we see him doing his laundry? Yeah. We, we, see, the, we see the case unfold, but it, but it never it never moves outside of that death row sub, okay. the, the death row yeah. narrative. And I think we can both agree. Yep. That the whatever the other the other narrative strand is, it should not take place in the UK. Yeah, who cares? Who cares? It should not take place in the At UK. First, I thought that I'd sat on the remote and changed it to another because I'm actually sitting on the remote. I was very I was very confused. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I thought yeah, I thought maybe it was glitching and swapping yep. between two series. Yep. Because well, they literally do not intersect until the absolute end, and absolutely. even then, so arbitrarily and yep. tangentially that you're still like, what? The also, what now? One of the great bits <laughs> is Tucci declining cases and not giving reasons or the reasons emerging gradually um something else is kind of interesting too like i mean this is getting a little bit more serious but you know the david Tennant thing is just this really 
bland thing about a father protecting his son and protecting his family, <laughs> whereas Tucci's helping strangers. Yes. And that, that charisma of like the savant, the criminal savant helping strangers. Yeah. It's like if Manhunter was a, a sitcom. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so well, Man, yeah. This, this comes from Stephen Moffat. Mindhunter. Mindhunter. This, this comes from Stephen Moffat, who did Sherlock. Right. So, that's, so obviously, I was going to say, it's a preternatural, crime solving. It's a Holmes Watson pairing, yeah. right? Yeah. So, yeah. that part of it, I think, it's a, it's a really strange watch because. The David Tennant stuff feels like something like Anatomy of a Scandal. It's like yeah. a classic four-part, lurid, hyperbolic British crime series full yeah. of weird coincidences and twists yeah. and turns. That can be fun. But the Tucci one, that has legs. <laughs> that could go on for 10. That's like the blacklist. It is. It's yeah, like the blacklist. It's true. It's true. That I was could thinking that. He seasons. could be James Spader. Don't and you, you can even see like a next... Like the, the latter on, it becomes like a spin-off series where he's on the run. Yep, exactly. Like a kind of or his prison side, break or his Tucci. sidekick. His sidekick gets his own show. Prison break, Tucci. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're absolutely right. Like, there's, although it should end with him being exonerated, there should be a subplot where he's out out of jail for a bit. Yeah, and then he comes true, back in. True. So look, I mean, I'm. I, I, I'm a hard in for all the Tucci stuff. So fast forward through the David Tennant yeah, shit, absolutely. And get to the Tucci stuff yeah, as soon as possible. I reckon this this. <laughs> You're either a tenant person or a Tucci person. Yeah. And I feel like like recent Tucci stuff has been, I mean, it's been good, but it's like been you know, Tucci's tour of Italy. Yeah. Tucci and Colin Firth are like, you know, agonized older white gay lovers. This is a Tucci <laughs> we want. This is Tucci shtick. This is Tucci. Because Tucci's That's so true. good when he acts, he acts <laughs> superior. That's true. And a little bit mysterious. Yeah. And, and, an, and enunciates stuff in a really deliberate way. That's true. Holds forth. Yes. Tucci's, <laughs> holds Tucci's, court. Tucci's holds good court. at holding forth, holding court. That's true. So, I mean, that's true. It's a prisoner on death row who has all the power and status. Yes. And that's just that, that, that wonderful inversion. Yeah, yeah. Right. The governor, the governor of the state is coming, yeah. begging him to solve this crime. Yeah. Tucci's like, I don't think I have time for you. And Dylan Baker works so well in that role. He's kind of like, basically the vibe is like, Tucci's like, I'm not going to take this case. And he's like, Tucci. <laughs> Tucci is grief. <laughs> And you, so you do tend to love these series about you know these these genius you know yep. sleuthing types yep. who yep. solve things. So the other one I'm thinking of is that one with uh, Monk. Oh, well, I was going to say, <laughs> is this is this Monk adjacent? Absolutely. I'm sh- I'm I'm, I'm going to. I agree so much. I can't. <laughs> yeah. So when I was watching this, I was like, this is Monk. And when I said it, it ends with him being exonerated, I mean the driving subplot of Monk is Monk's wife was murdered. Oh, okay, so right. It's like how does Monk? deal with that that's it yeah it's, it's monk yeah you had some big monk moments it's you know. absolutely monk yeah, yeah yeah i mean when when carl first came to australia we watched all of monk <laughs> it's like it's it's a safe space yeah it's great yeah and i kind of identify with the ocd elements of monk as well but so yeah this is like monk plus the blacklist um plus sherlock with tucci yeah and like yeah. who cares about david Tennant? like really <laughs> let's be honest in this series yeah those are the series that was those are the moments where i absolutely checked out yeah i mean like, i thought they were still good but like it was like watching a good show that's going to end in three series, whereas this, surely, <laughs> I mean, surely this becomes like the blacklist. Surely I, someone... I, I will only well, speak to Elizabeth Keane. <laughs> well, it could be like uh, done a Sherlock-type way where you have different series of... You that's know, amazing. Film length, summer, six-episode, mini, you know, limited, limited series. Limited series of Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, am- that's exactly what I want. Yeah. yeah I, 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 yeah, exactly. I want Tucci holding forth about psychology in prison and whenever anybody asks him whether he's guilty, just deflecting it in a knowing way. <laughs> So, so we're talking about like uh, I'm not a big fan of Malkovich, F. Murray Abraham, um, uh, John Turturro. 
I like actorly when there's an inane element. Yeah. Tucci is actorly in a way I like. <laughs> he, like he sure he, is. He is so act. He just chews scenery. Yeah, like, like James Spader. James Spader, yeah. Exa- cut from exactly the same cloth yeah. as James Spader. Yeah. Yeah, like yeah. they're literally chewing their words. Yeah. Maybe there'd be a blacklist, um, <laughs> blacklist, like blacklist inside man crossover. Yeah. That's I, amazing. I think actors like this as well, like because they're film actors primarily or theatre yeah. actors, yeah. there's a real sense that I'm slumming it yeah. in TV. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they're slumming yes. it and they yes. know it. And yes. There's, there's a, a tongue in cheek yes. element. So they know this is a very broad meaning. Medium, so yeah. they ham it up. Yeah, that's great. That's great. <laughs> the medium, like the character, yeah. the medium is below them. It's yeah, beneath yeah. them. So they've got to act superior. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just taking home those paychecks. <laughs> but all, but having fun along the way. Yeah. 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 And, and obviously Tucci's Italy series where he just yeah. you know, takes, I don't know, what, whatever, you know, production companies checks yeah. to you know, dine out in Italy. Like he knows it. He knows, he knows television is, is a lazy medium and he's just going to, he's going to take it for a ride while he can. Well, it seems like that's a trip just without any scripting. <laughs> it's just eating. So look, I, I was... The David Tennant subplot, yeah, whatever. But the Tucci subplot, I'm Party. such a hard in for the Tucci. So I, how are you going to watch this going forward? Look, I'll be honest with you. I started watching the second series and I just fast-forwarded through all the non-Tucci stuff. But then it was kind of hard because the, the Tucci stuff. But then part of me was like, do I need to follow it? Or am I just watching Tucci extemporise? It's like a Tucci monologue. So, I, so you're going to watch it on fast forward yeah yeah and yeah then, uh, I might do and that and then maybe read some plots read some synopsis plots exactly and, and then just yeah I also really hope that <laughs> read, they, read the series that it was watch the series that it was meant to be exactly <laughs> I kind of really hope that there's lots of like more and more you create a YouTube supercut of the series just, just with Tucci and maybe some voiceover narration no, yeah, yeah, to yeah. pass you know what's, yeah, what so, happens in the David so Tennant it, over the last 20 minutes David Tennant has been doing English stuff <laughs> back in, I, I feel like I, I also want Tucci to hold forth more on criminology there's yes. a lot of potential there yes, just there to be really really like explain obvious stuff in a really academic way yes that'll be great yes yeah. yes <laughs> look this was i mean this was one of those shows that when it started with the david Tennant stuff i was like oh this could be a bit by the numbers then when tucci came in i was like oh this is this is so fun this is so fun so look it's it's a tucci apotheosis i'm hard in for tucci <laughs> so maybe hold off watching it until you create the youtube supercut yep, yep and then we'll put it together yeah exactly <laughs> all right archive quota time yep billy do you like hawaii i love hawaii do you like private detective series? I love them. Do you like the 1980s? I love it. <laughs> do you like crazy helicopter shots of cars driving along <laughs> coastal highways? Vertiginous highways. I do. <laughs> Magnum PI. It's actually a show where like it actually was better than the sum of its parts. <laughs> like all those things are in it and they all congeal brilliantly. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. Great so from the app. I'd never seen this pilot. I'd, I'd never yeah. seen any of Magnum PI. Okay. Um, so a bit of background to the, yep. the series. So it's an American crime drama television series. It stars Tom Selleck. Yep. As the the titular Thomas Magnum, yep, who's a private investigator, he lives on Oahu, Hawaii, or, or they call it in the series the islands. The islands. The islands. He lives on the islands. Yep. Um, it ran for eight series. Uh, it starts. So this series is 1980, which yep. I think explains a lot. It's really on the cusp between the 70s mm. and the 80s. Well, it has a lot of features of 70s TV series. Yep. This pilot, but it also foreshadows what was to come and so, in the 1980s, especially the 1980s aesthetic. And something interesting I read was that apparently Hawaii Five O ended in 1980, and oh, up until up until that point in time, it was the longest running, I think, police procedural ever. Oh, so, so I feel like this this, this is taking over the baton, takes the mantle. Yep. and there's actually a, an allusion, a reference oh. to Hawaii Five O. Oh, so right. it says the Five O's and oh, like this. Yep, okay. In the pilot, yep. when the car runs off the road. Yep. Um, so this was this was a huge hit mm. for. American television network CBS consistently ranked in the top 20 US TV programs in the Nielsen ratings for the first five years, um, up to number three mm. in the 1982-83 series. And I think, you know, partly the whole idea of 
aesthetic of the 80s was instantiated by a series like this. I feel, I feel like between the Hawaii of Magnum PI and the Miami of Miami Vice, mm. you've got, I mean, this is like 80s aesthetic fully formed, right? It's like helicopters and hyper-reality. Yeah. Like yeah. The whole thing feels yeah. 80s from the get-go. Yeah, well, the aesthetic does, but yeah. some of the, some of the, you know, the, the, the titles, yes. sequences and some of the, the slight hamminess in yep. acting still feels a little bit, you know, of the 70s. And there's one other respect in which I think it's massively 70s, which is, I mean, is this one of the first decisive post-Vietnam texts? Yes. I know. Like, this feels I was like... not expecting that. No, this basically takes all the iconography of Vietnam and reframes it as escapism. Yeah. Is, is, this, is this the first time that helicopters appear yeah. in American television and cinema since the beginning of the Vietnam true. War for pure escapism? True, it's, true. It's, it is not, like... It, this is not the helicopter, Vietnam helicopter displaced the ghettos this is the yep. Vietnam helicopter displaced yep. to the, the coasts of oahu i mean scenic oahu everything is scenic about helicopter flights well everything is about vietnam here yeah, right so America he's processing the trauma of vietnam well exactly so he so magnum is a vet yeah all his friends on hawaii are vets mm. the person who's killed in the first episode is his best buddy who was a vet that's right so he has to exonerate it's him a shadow shadowy conspiracy criminal conspiracy mm. involving yep. the old his old uh, army well network. it turns out Spoilers, I guess, that his... Well, maybe we shouldn't. Well, just jump... I mean, I mean you're probably you know, jump, 30, 30, 40 years Yeah, on. you'll be fine. I mean, it turns out that the main criminal conspirator is his platoon leader mm. in Vietnam who's mm. getting revenge for being left behind, Robert Lozier. So it's almost, <laughs> like, it's almost like the series captures this generation of Vietnam vets who didn't quite make it home. Mm. They hold up in Hawaii. So yeah. Hawaii becomes this nexus between yeah. mainland US and Vietnam. It's the closest point of US entry. It's yeah. the closest part of America to Vietnam. Yeah. I mean, Vietnam's everything. climatically. Absolutely. And, you know, in terms of its landscape. I mean, the whole episode is intercut with Vietnam flashbacks, mm. but they look like they're shot in Hawaii. Yes. They've got this Hawaiian, <laughs> they've got this rote, like Hawaiian sheen to them. Yeah. So the whole thing is about processing and reframing the trauma of Vietnam as entertainment. Yes. And it's almost like all the helicopter stuff. I mean, the series has such... I didn't realise how much of this series or remember how much of this series was shot from the air. Mm. So it's like all that helicopter trauma from Vietnam turns into this buoyant exuberant line of flight at having simply survived yeah so the characters always feel airbound mobile mm. uplifted mm. it's constantly driving the whole on the highway oh, yeah it's a wonderful title what's the highway called the well uh, the, i think it's the, 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 the poly the, the poly, poly highway the poly. but there, there's an incredible chase scene where it's just a cross-section of every highway infrastructure on the island yeah but the whole thing is vietnam is over let's celebrate yes it's yes. it's so thoroughly yes. post nam and, and it's so interesting isn't it because there's that sense that Vietnam was this, you know, induced this great, great crisis of American exceptionalism mm. and also American masculinity. Yeah. So we start seeing, obviously, in the 1980s, the creation of this steroidal, hyper-masculine, mm. you, know, uh, you know, superhero, ubermensch-type mm. character who single-handedly wins mm. the Vietnam War in the case of mm. um, Rambo II. This is an interesting alternative inflection mm. of that crisis of American masculinity. Mm. So well, it's almost like that action cinema trajectory is contained in the flashbacks here. Mm. So the flashbacks are like the action film and the stuff that's happening in the present is the alternative masculine trajectory. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's an alternative masculine trajectory. Uh, Thomas Magnum is an interesting masculine character. On the mm. one hand, he's very virile. Mm. He's, you know, he's got the you know, big handlebar moustache. Mm. You know, his, his physical stature and prowess is, foresh- is you know, foregrounded mm. over and over again. There's a couple of uh, residents who live at the... Bikini clad residents who are all over him, but on the other hand, he's he's an ex-vet who's you know serving this kind of precarious employment. 
he's not wealthy, but he's given some sort of you know, temporary lodgings mm. and this billionaire's property. Uh, he's not no longer part of the military. Mm. Uh, he drives a Ferrari, but the Ferrari is is lifted from the billionaire. So he's he's sort of this provisional or kind of you might even say liminal depiction of, mm. of masculinity, and which might actually become more fully into fruition. So it's like a masculinity in trauma, working through trauma. I, I agree. And processing Vietnam trauma. And also, you see, I think you see a shift in the 80s from, say, the paranoia of the action film to a more, I'm going to call it queer or homosocial pleasure. So say the difference between something like Rambo and Top Gun, mm. where Rambo is, is so paranoid in its masculinity, whereas Top Gun is extravagantly homoerotic. Mm. This isn't quite that, but the stuff in the action flashbacks breeds a particular kind of toxic masculinity that culminates with the Robert Lozier character, the troop that they left behind murdering him. Whereas there's there's more relaxation to there's more relaxation to Magnum's masculinity and his greatest love is actually for his buddy who died. So it turns yeah. out that the guy who's killed is was his best friend from Nam. Yeah. And the, and when people and the way that the buddy is killed is he He's found dead in an airport with bags of cocaine inside, and everyone says, "Well, he was a drug mule." Whereas Magnum says, no, I, "I know him, and in, in only the way that one man can know another man from combat, and I know that's not him." So he has this incredible preternatural intimacy, which is a bit like Tom Cruise and Goose, I think, mm. in, in yeah, Top Gun. Well, certainly, the, his domestic arrangement is, is well, unconventional. We'll come back to that in a moment, but I was going to say he also gets with this buddy's wife, which 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 seems incongruous at first, but until you feel like, well, it's really like he's getting with the buddy vicariously. Yeah. I agree. I think one of the most amazing things about this is, you know, you've got this procedural stuff, but the domestic setup is amazing. So, mm. I mean, so much of evoking Hawaii, right, is evoking the porosity, the mm. porous spaces of the tropics. Mm. And the place where he lives is just porous in the most amazing way. So yeah. it's, it's the house of a famous writer. Um, sorry, I'm explaining the show to you, but you know, it's the house of a famous writer who we never see. The manager is a guy called Higgins, an English guy. <laughs> what a strange character. But Magnum's job is to live on the property but continually check whether it can be broken into. Yeah. So that's poor. That's the porosity of Hawaii right there, right? Yeah. He lives here, but his whole job is always seeing if he can get in. Yeah, yeah. So he's always at the threshold of the property checking out mm. How, mm. how permeable it is. Mm. It's such a great Hawaiian space. Mm. But also a sitcom space. Yes. It's, yes. Such, it's such a sitcom yes. setup. Higgins, who is the, the manager of the property, yeah. uh, is this British stiff upper lip type mm. who's constantly wearing these car keys with his pants pulled up you know well mm. past his navel um, he speaks in this very stuffy way he mm. always carries around a little riding crop mm. <laughs> and, uh, he, has a, he has two two dogs two dachshunds called uh what a Zeus and apollo mm. so it's very it's very screwball well it's it, and i was thinking about what made it work i mean i think two things are really effective firstly he contours Magnum's displacement. Mm. So he makes Magnum feel both more and less displaced mm. from America. But also I think it's like a sitcom barracks. Yeah. So it's as if Magnum is still attached to his military past through... The, it's like a compound. Yeah. And Higgins is like, he's very regal, he's very military in his bearing. Yeah. It's as if Higgins... It's like we see here... He's the CEO. Yeah, exactly. So we see in retrospect the Robert Lozier character, the... The Lozier. Lozier. The Robert Lozier troop commander who turned out to be... The way he processed Vietnam was to go full vigilante after Vietnam. So yeah. here's the negative trajectory, whereas in Higgins you have this more benign military figure mm. and this more domestic quotidian mm. barracks environment. So yeah. it's got this incredible yeah. core, which is at once sitcom evocation of the permeability of Hawaii, but also 
allows, again, allows Magnum to process his military heritage in the present in this more domestic way. It's it's a great space. Yeah, it's yeah. it's almost the best scenes take place there. Place there. Yeah. But they're as good as the investigation. Yeah, yeah. yeah? It also um, reminded me somewhat of um, Moonlighting. Yes. So it seemed like there was there was definitely a peak in popularity of the the combination of the, the private detective slash film noir archetype mm. with obviously the screwball mm. genre mm. that really peaked in the nineteen eighties. Obviously, with Bruce Willis's motormouth character in in Moonlighting, and obviously Tom Selleck's um, PI in in Magnum. And there's yeah, there's an interesting combination here mm. of sort of those detective. Fiction archetypes, mm. voice, the hard-boiled voice, voiceover narration. Well, it feels like they're kind of they're being used as a litmus test. Post Nam, there's such a crisis of masculinity. Noir becomes a litmus test for how much of traditional masculinity remains, yes. and how malleable is it, and yeah. how flexible is it. So, yeah, yeah I, it's, it's, it's almost working itself back from a crisis. So he's, yes. he's you know, in this provisional housing, yes. he's, you know, he's very clear. He's sort of, you know, this kind of petty bourgeois mm. status. He has mobility like a private detective, but only it's very place bound by mm. obviously Higgins, who, who's this kind of mm. you know, mother duck character, mm. and also the very commandeering CO on his former mm. naval base. Mm. So he doesn't quite have that, mm. that that mobility of a classic private detective. Mm. And he's on Hawaii. Yeah, there's only so far he can go. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there are lines of flight, and mm. it's you don't get a sense that there is a clear. Metropolis of uh, Honolulu here. It's, no. It takes place on the on the outskirts, the highways mm. around there. This compound, and in fact, a lot of the episode is them exploring outer islands by air. So yeah. there's, there's there's no sense of him being embedded in the city. Yeah. In the same way as a yeah. regular. So part of me wonders whether this becomes more conventional as it goes on. I wonder that because I I looked at because this almost felt like a really unusual film. Yeah. About Vietnam, like yeah. a post Viet, like a great. I mean, it is, it's an hour and a half the pilot, so yeah. it's a great post Vietnam film yeah. and very very flamboyant in in what it resorts to to mm. to traverse the trauma so rather than just focusing on an autobiographical or naturalistic depiction it almost imagines this completely new hyper real 80s aesthetic yeah. and intentively imagines this new slick masculinity hyper real masculinity as a solution yeah. rather than the action yeah. action kind of her hyperbole so you can see magnet becoming more yeah. of a stereotype yes. as this series goes along and as it becomes more popular um, and people Obviously, there are great moments of Magnum's, you know, incredible virility, mm. which, you know, as a, a sort of vicarious wish fulfillment, a lot of people would be, mm. would be into. But mm. uh, here, it's it's really tempered by various scenes that really portray him as vulnerable, yep. disempowered. And having... having almost a, a, a cuckold at, at different points. And you put it well, like, so much of it takes place in that space, doesn't it, between the compound and the Pearl Harbor barracks. Yeah. So two spaces which, which evoke that old institutional world of military life, mm. but he's slightly disempowered in each. Mm. It's funny, I was looking on Apple TV Plus at the future episodes and even just seeing that they were 45 minutes each and hearing the plot synopsis, they immediately felt more conventional. Mm. It feels like the 90 minutes, it needs the 90 minutes to really breathe mm. and to really capture that rhythm of his personality. Yeah. Um, uh, look, I thought I thought this was great, actually. I thought yeah. it was, it was way more... Really absorbing, wasn't it? Yeah, and way more... It sounds like a snobby thing to say, but way more sophisticated in what it was doing than I was expecting. Yeah. Like it was a real, it was like a great post-Vietnam film yeah. or a great Vietnam film. Yeah. So 
I'm a hard in. I'm curious to watch more of yeah. it. I thought it was fantastic. I think even if this does revert to a more conventional mm. register, it'll be such a comforting register. And, and Tom Selleck is so charismatic. He's great. His role. And I found myself just curious about the logistics of the show. Like, I know that there is a Murder, She Wrote crossover. Mm. I wonder, does he ever go to the mainland? Or are there plots that take him off the islands? Mm. Does he explore other islands? Like, so much of it is about that connective tissue around the islands. Mm. And I guess more distantly, that connective tissue with Vietnam. So there's, remember there's this weird subplot where the main drug dealer on the island is the daughter of a prominent Viet Cong general. Mm. So there's all these... Yeah. It's There's such a strong sense that, yeah, like this whole generation of men didn't quite get home. No. This, this is where they hold up. Mm. This is the the last, you know, the, the main port of call between mainland America mm. and Vietnam. Mm. That whole subculture, I feel it could articulate in a really interesting way. Yeah, those connections, those networks still remain. Yeah, and they're glimpsed in this yeah. episode. So this was great. I thought this was, yeah. I, I loved it. Yeah, I, yep. I thought this was great. I think this is definitely a series. Unfortunately, it's actually not available freely on any streaming platform. No. Time, so you need to buy it episode and by episode or series by we series. We were wondering. It's a bit of a disincentive. We were wondering, weren't we, whether to watch it on YouTube or Apple? Yeah. But I think you want to watch it on Apple TV+. Plus. Yeah, it yeah. I, I really looks so good. This does get a second streaming life because it's it's really great. It's and, great. Um, also beautiful to watch. Yeah, Beautifully shot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful comfort food. Yep. Televisual comfort food. No, I love it. I remember with Moonlighting, I, I wasn't as in on the rapport for whatever reason, but this one I'm a hard in. I thought I yeah. thought it really worked so much so that for my archive choice this week, I thought let's go back to that same moment, okay. that late right. '70s, early '80s moment. Right. But let's go to a different landscape. Let's do Dallas. Oh, so let's okay. do the first ever episode of Dallas. Have you okay. ever seen the credit sequence for Dallas? No. That in itself is fantastic. Okay. So we're moving from kind of Hawaiian post-NAM to Texas, oil barons, multi-generational family epics. I've never seen any of those big shows like Dallas or Dynasty, those great no. sprawling soap operas of the 80s. So I think Dallas is 78. Again, it's on Apple TV+. Plus. But I thought let's go from one epochal late 70s early 80s moment to the next i think that's i think that's uh, very well chosen yeah good so next um uh, uh, real housewives of dallas i should clarify no i'm joking we're, <laughs> we're doing there, there is a real house <laughs> we've, of we've done the real housewives yeah we'll, we'll come back to them we'll come back to them one, but um, was awful. we'll come back to them um but yeah dallas next week so um cool um it's gone a bit longer this week sorry we did talk about <laughs> blockbuster for about 40 minutes um if we go to watch all hallows eve some time with art the clown um i'm billy i'm drew that was pilot club